podium itself. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let me know when you are ready. Okay. So I will have you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and it's a somewhat of a short passage, um, verses 23 through 28, but there's a lot uh, in these uh, few verses, actually. And uh, as we've been making our way through Hebrews, uh, the writer has uh, been coming at us uh, over and over again. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's the better sacrifice, the better high priest, the better everything. And he says it in a number of uh, ways and in a number of times. And and I think for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons being, um, he knows we're forgetful. And we'll just kind of read it and then kind of move on with life. And he's like, I don't want you to do that. I had to keep coming back to it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. I don't want you to forget this. And, and also, I think there's this idea of he just can't say it enough. You know, he just, I, I want you to see it this way. And I want you to see it that way. And I want you to look, ponder it from, from this perspective. And, and so he's just been going at it uh, so many different ways. And, and again, this morning, we get this uh, idea of Jesus as uh, the superior high priest and what that means. And uh, like I said, he has a lot to say about it. Now, I want to uh, just pick up as we go into this passage um, a little earlier in verses 21 of chapter 9. Uh, he's talking about the priests on the Day of Atonement specifically, but, but um, as just in general, um, how they would sprinkle blood on the tent and, and the vessels used in worship. And then in verse 22, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And so we're going to pick up on that idea of, of uh, the, the purifying with blood, and then he'll carry that through. So let me read from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal uh, with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We pray that you will add your blessing to the reading of it and enlighten us with your truth that we may give you more glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, I'm going to show my age just a little bit here, uh, but back in the late 70s, in fact, it was uh, 1977, and I was a child, which made this even a little more spooky, uh, but there was a book that came out, and, and a lot of people were talking about it. I think it became a film and, and some other things as well, but the name of the book was Beyond and Back. And it was written by a charismatic uh, pastor, um, and, and it dealt with people who had died but then were revived. For, for whatever reason, they had died, but the doctors were able to bring them back to life, and, and there were several different accounts. And, and what happened? Well, when, when you were dead there, what was going on? And, and so this book was about that. And like I said, as a child, it was a, a little uh, spooky. Um, but it's an idea that has fascinated people a lot. In fact, uh, books and, and TV shows and, and movies especially have this idea of, well, what happens when someone dies? And, and often in movies, uh, to use that example, sometimes it will, it will follow the person who has died, you know, as they're taking care of business or trying to do things or protect somebody or... I think back in the 70s, some guy came back and had to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. You know, it runs the gamut. Some are very serious um, and heavy. Some are romances. A lot of romances deal with this. And, and uh, some are just comedies. Because the possibilities are endless. I mean, what do you, who do you consult about that? You can kind of come up with almost anything you want. But the writer of, of Hebrews here, who is certainly not writing fiction... He's not writing us a novel to entertain or a movie script. Uh, he's writing God's truth, and he tells us exactly what comes next. It wouldn't make for much of a movie, really, but uh, you die and then judgment. And that's it. Appointed for a man to die once, and after that, judgment. You see that in verse 27. But he wants us to understand a few things before we get there. And so we're going to focus on, on what he, he wants us to know before we get to that verse. And I, and I want to look at, there's, there's three mentions of Christ appearing, if you'll notice that, in this passage. In verse 24, it tells us that, that Christ uh, appears um, in the presence of God. In verse 26, that same word comes up again, uh, the past tense, he has appeared. Uh, by the way, if you're using the New American Standard, I think they use manifested there, but the same idea, but in all the other translations, appeared. And then in verse 28, we get that again, uh, where it says Christ will appear a second time. So we have these three different uh, appearing appearances, if you will, of, of Christ in this passage. And so uh, I want to focus a little bit on, on these appearings and, and what that means. And as I mentioned, the author, we, we kind of picked this up where he left off as, uh, with the, the priest, the Old Covenant priests in the Old Testament having to, to sprinkle uh, uh, blood on almost everything, as it says in verse 22. He had to, to, to make sacrifices, sprinkle blood on everything, in, including the Ark of the Covenant, by the way. He would sprinkle blood on that, and that represents the, the, the presence of God because, as he said in verse 23, all had to be purified. 
everything had to be purified. So he was sprinkling blood on people and, and everything that was used in the worship. But then the interesting thing comes is at the end of, of verse 23, but the heavenly things themselves. And he's talking about Jesus in heaven. So now we ask the question, does heaven have to be purified? What's he writing about there? And, and it's another reminder for us that as he writes uh, this book, uh, the, the author is speaking in a general or maybe even metaphorical way. He's contrasting the old covenant, which his readers knew very well. They grew up under that old uh, covenant, the, the Judaism. He, and he wants us to, con, uh, to, to contrast that with the new covenant then, the, the Jesus, the, the way of, of Christ. And, and so he, he uses some generalizations. I like how R.C. Sproul uh, helps us uh, to see a little bit as Sproul wrote this. The heavenly sanctuary itself does not need to be purified from defilement by human sin. However, just as the earthly sanctuary was purified by sacrificial blood and set apart as the place where sinful humans could approach God, so also the true heavenly sanctuary has now been set apart by the sacrifice of Christ as a meeting place for sinful people to enter, drawing near to God through the blood of Jesus. And so uh, he's using this uh, as he, he writes this in this general way. It's the, it's the new meeting place. And for a sinful human to get there, it's got to be through blood. Um, and, and then uh, Jesus goes with this uh, better sacrifices. And, and uh, by sacrifices, I'll get to this uh, a little bit later, uh, his life and his death. Um, he, he brings those both before the throne of God, and, and we will uh, get to that. But, but the idea being that these old covenant priests would uh, go uh, into the holy of holies, the most holy place, with the blood of animals. Um, but here's the thing. Animals aren't moral creatures, and, and animals are temporary. I mean, they're, they're part of fallen creation. They're, they're going to die, and... And animals don't really represent humanity. They're animals. Um, and you really can't take that to the true throne, to the heavenly throne of, of God. We, we need something eternal and uh, a moral being, if you will, and human. And, and as the writer of Hebrews has been telling us, Christ is, is all of these things. We need that sacrifice to deal fully and finally with our sin. Something with infinite holiness, uh, not, not inferior, if you will. And if you remember Genesis, the, the creation account, God uh, made man in his image, man with dominion over the animals. In fact, Adam named all the animals, which showed his superiority. Well, you can't take the inferior uh, to the heavenly throne. It, it, it would work in, under the, that old covenant. That's the way God set that up. But we need something different um, because of where Jesus is going. Uh, have you ever had this question? It's actually a command, but it, it's usually formed in, in, as a question, and, and I'll ask it in question form. Has anyone ever asked you, you're not going to go dressed like that, are you? 
Have you heard, or is that only me? Um, but I've heard that a number of times. You're not really going to go like that, are you? And if you've been asked that question, you know that the right answer is no. I guess not. What do you think I should wear? But it's this idea, you know, do you know where we're going? Do you know who's going to be there? I mean, you can't go like that, can you? In a much more real and serious way, where Christ is going, he, he, can't, he can't go with goat's blood. Are you going to go with goat's blood there? Is the blood of a goat really going to do what you need it to do? No. We need the better sacrifice. And so we see in verse 24, the first mention then of Christ appearing in the presence of God, uh, not into holy places made with hands, the, the, the goats and the bulls and, and everything else, the sheep, that, that would work there. But Christ isn't going uh, into that holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself. And we've spent some time looking at that Old Covenant tent specifically and even the temple a little bit. And, and uh, we have gone through, well, we've looked briefly at uh, Exodus and Leviticus and, and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy, some of these others that talk about that old tent or the temple. But what I want us to do is, is get a glimpse of where Jesus is appearing for us right now. And we actually do get some glimpses of heaven in scripture and and one of those is in revelation chapter 4 and so if you have your bibles and you want to turn there i'm going to read a little bit from revelation uh, chapter 4 uh, just to give us a, a glimpse if you will uh, into uh, the heavenlies uh, john is writing this and john writes in chapter 4 of of revelation after this i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. How would you like to be John at this point? There's a door, and on the other side is heaven. And then John continues, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And John uh, continues, 
continues on with uh, the elders worshiping. But, but we see the real throne. We, we get a glimpse of it as John, you could almost see struggling to write what this looks like. I mean, it's, it's so brilliant and magnificent. He, he's trying to come up with the words, mention it. And there's, there's actually a lot of the, the Old Covenant temple language in here. Uh, we notice uh, one of the things that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the cherubim and seraphim uh, that are around the throne of God. Uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, represents uh, the, the presence of God in, in the Old Covenant, uh, the, the cherubim were on, on the Ark. They would guard the mercy seat, if, if you will. It, but here they are, the, the real things uh, around the, the, the throne of God. Um, also, just one other one, because we talked about it, that there's those seven torches uh, I mentioned in the in the holy place, in the tent, and in the temple, there was the the lampstand that had seven candles on it. There's there's just a, if you were to research this, it's it's actually quite fascinating. Just all of the uh, the the imagery from the old covenant tent into this this uh, heavenly throne, and also there's a lot of activity. If you see that, there's lightning and rumbling and thunder and this nonstop worship of God and his holiness. You just get this sense of there's a lot going on and it's loud and majestic. It's, you know, I, I picture heaven sometimes as being calm. You know, I think, oh, I'll just be sitting there and, and the breeze will be going through my hair because in heaven I'll have hair and, and there'll be this breeze going through it. But I read this, I'm like, whoa, there's a lot going on in, in heaven around the throne of God. And, and this is where our high priest is appearing, as we see in, in verse uh, 24 of, of Hebrews 9, in the presence of God on our behalf. And that on our behalf, I'm going to come back to a few times, because that ends up being a very important idea. Um, but when we think about the, the cherubim and the seraphim, I, I just want to uh, look at them for a minute. In Revelation 4, it said they had eyes, uh, or they're full of eyes all around and within. And, and one of the ideas that's uh, getting at is that they see everything. You know, you're not going to sneak into that room, and, and nor is anything you've done going to just be ignored. They see it all everything and God is aware of everything and and some people will think of God's we call it omniscience his all-knowingness and and they'll think of that and then try to think of how they can find a better way to hide things well if God knows everything I've got to find some carpet he's not aware of and sweep some sin under that uh, and a lot of people, I think, have that idea in the back of their heads. Maybe there's some things I can hide. But the better way to think of this is that I can go to God and confess all things because he knows. It's an invitation, or, or if you want to use that word, or a reminder uh, that we, we can and have to be honest and real and open with God. He knows it. We don't have to try to hide anything. We can just come to him. He knows what it is. And we have a high priest on our behalf right there. 
And, and, and as I mentioned, we're going to come to this high priest on our behalf. But before we do, I, I want to talk about the second uh, mention of Christ appearing because it's his first appearance on earth, actually. And we see that in verse 26. Uh, we see that where the, the writer says, um, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages. And, and this idea of Christ appearing on earth uh, was huge for the, the writers of Scripture, uh, John and, and Peter and, and, and Paul uh, and, and the others as well. In fact, in, in John, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he starts out with this very idea uh, because he wants it to be known. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touch, uh, touched with our hands. He wants everyone to know Christ was there and we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And Peter would do the same. I, I, right there. I was right there talking with him and, and, and uh, we could touch each other. And, and these guys, it's not, uh, you know, uh, self-centered bragging. They're not name dropping here and saying, hey, I was hanging out with God. Uh, but rather, it, it is this reality that Christ was here and they saw the life he lived the perfectly righteous life that he lived. They saw that. They, they saw him shed his blood, give himself up, basically, on the cross to die for sin. They saw him ascend into heaven. This isn't just some abstract concept, but it's reality, and they saw it. They saw him sacrifice himself to put away sin, as it says in verse 26. And, and this, this is the real high priest now who has ascended to the throne of God, where he now appears on our behalf. As we're back at verse 24 again. His sacrifice accepted. Remember, that was one of the things with the Old Covenant. Uh, when the priest would go in, to, especially on the Day of Atonement, he had to do everything right or he was going to die. And, and there were some priests, they didn't even get into the Holy of Holies, but just in that holy place, they did things wrong and they died. But Christ, he made it to the throne of God. He lives. That sacrifice has been accepted. And so let's think through what this means because uh, this becomes really important. We have the life of Christ, which was perfect, sinless. We have his death for sin, his ascending into heaven, being accepted and appearing on our behalf. And what that means is that Christ is there saying, look, I've taken that person's sin. I've taken his sin or her sin. And that person has my righteousness. We call it the, the, the great exchange. Christ is there saying, look, I've, I've got their sin. They've got my righteousness. Our high priest is before the Father saying this. And what that means is this. The Father cannot and will not reject you. The Father cannot reject you if Christ is there on your behalf. Because to reject you, he would have to reject his Son. He's accepted that sacrifice. And that is our high priest before the throne of God saying, I took his sin. 
He's got my righteousness. And God, even if he didn't want to, the Father would have to accept that because he has accepted his Son. And his Son is there on our behalf. Now, of course, the Father and Son, they work in perfect unity. They both want our salvation. But, but no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you are in Christ, he is your Lord, you have made him your Savior, and he is your righteousness, as Paul would write. He has become our righteousness. Then the Father will not reject that. And that is why we can confess with total honesty because he will not reject that as long as we come with the blood of Christ. And that kind of brings us back then to where we started uh, this morning as, as we then look ahead to the next appearing of Christ, which comes up in, in verse 28, but I want to take verses 27 and 28 together because that brings us back to this idea then of, well, what happens after we die? And the answer, as the writer puts it for us, is judgment. That's it. You die once, and then you're judged. And the expositors' uh, Greek Testament, I like how they put it, they write this, men are not permitted to return to earth to compensate for neglect or failure. The results of life are immediately entered upon. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote this, both reincarnation and the belief that physical death is the end of personal existence are excluded. Um, you don't get reincarnated. It's not just the end. There is something, and it's judgment. Uh, a lot of Eastern religions, uh, including uh, Hinduism, uh, they tend to have this cyclical view of, of history, basically that there is no end. Things are, are created and destroyed and recreated and destroyed, and, and the wheel just keeps on turning and will always turn uh, for eternity. But uh, that is not what Scripture teaches here or anywhere. You die, and then there's judgment. And that can get uncomfortable when you think about it too long. I, you know, one of the signs of, of me, I think, uh, getting older is some of the TV shows I watch. A lot of the commercials have to do with retirement planning. And, and it's also on sports, too. So I have that going. And, and the, the retirement planning uh, commercials are, are interesting. And, and, and they're focused basically on the same idea of here's what the retirement planner is going to do for you. He's, he's going to listen to you and, and assess your needs and, and your desires. What do you need to retire? And, and then they'll come up with a plan. And, and uh, yeah, according to the commercials, put in a lot of time and effort to come up with a perfect plan so you can retire just the way you want to. And that's good. I mean, retirement planning is, is a good thing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I just use it as an example because they come at this idea of, well, because everyone's different and, and we've got to come up with your own special plan. But when we look at uh, what happens after that, uh, the writer of Hebrews puts us all in the same boat. No, we're all the same. You all have the same need. Here's what you need. You need a high priest with a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. 
And that's what we have. That's what he wants us to see. This perfect sacrifice made once. Just as man dies once, Christ died once to bear our sins. It's, and this idea of the one-time sacrifice, that, that becomes uh, a much bigger deal in, in Hebrews chapter 10. And, and so we'll talk about that uh, when we look at Hebrews 10. But, but I want to uh, look at this, this appearing of, of Christ in verse 28 then. As he appears on earth for a second time. It says, uh, appear a second time. Um, not to deal with sin, but, but to save those who are... Uh, eagerly uh, waiting for him. And, and you'll notice there that as he appears um, the second time, he, he's not going to deal with sin. That, that, that's been taken care of for those who are in him. But he is going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And as we close out, I just want to Think about that eagerly waiting for him. You know, Paul writes in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, he, he writes about the crown of righteousness, uh, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to all who have loved his appearing. Those who have loved that he appeared and, and, and what he did and are eager for him to to appear again. And the question this passage kind of leaves us with then is, are you eagerly waiting for Christ to return? You know, Matthew uh, 25, Jesus talked about returning. And, and the, some of the things he said, he said, when the Son of Man uh, comes in his glory, and he's talking about himself, and all the angels with him, and, and we know what they're like a little bit and and then he will sit on his glorious throne well we read about that throne we, we see what's happening there before him will be gathered all the nations all the the people and the writer of Hebrews along with Paul and and John and Peter and and other writers of scripture they would say if you're not eagerly looking forward to that you're missing something you're missing one of the joys of being in Christ and, and I've talked with people uh, who will be very honest about maybe not being that eager about Christ returning. And, and, and some of the uh, reasons why vary. And, and they're not really all bad, but, but I think the writer of Hebrews would say, but they're a little short-sighted. Uh, one of the things that I've heard people say is, I kind of like things the way they are. I'm okay with this. I don't really, I kind of like hanging out with who I hang out with and doing what I do, and, and that's fine. We are commanded to be content with what we have, uh, but uh, as Paul would tell us, if, if you like the things of this world too much, you're, you're missing the glory of God. You're falling in love with the world a little bit too much when you should be focusing on the glory of, of God. Don't miss that, he would tell us. Uh, other people will say things along the line of, well, you know, I have things to finish. There's tasks to do, and I want to, you know, get this done and that done and leave this for those people and, and whatever it else. And, and projects are good and, and, and healthy and, and even glorify God. Uh, but here's the thing, those projects and tasks are never the point. 
It's all temporary. Just like those old covenant tents were temporary. It's all temporary, but God has made you for an eternal purpose and an eternal glory. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss that. And then others uh, will be very honest that I've talked to. And they'll say, you know what, I'm not eager about Christ coming back because I've kind of kept him at arm's length. I've kind of just had him there when I need him, but I've not really embraced him. And, and when pushed, a lot of times the truth comes out and then they will say, because there's some sin that I just really haven't given up yet. There is some unresolved sin that I really can't let go of and it's part of my life and I'm not that eager that Jesus comes back with that in my life. And the writer of Hebrews would say, well, go to that high priest and embrace him because he's appearing in heaven on your behalf and his sacrifice will be accepted. You know, Jesus had these very comforting words in John chapter 6. He told his disciples, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we can read those words and be eager for his return because he's appearing for us. And if we come to him, he will not cast us out. And we can be eager because we know there is a joy that exceeds all joy. More joy than we can ever find on earth. There is an eternal purpose and an internal glory that God has waiting for us. And there is a high priest who cannot and will not fail us if we come to him and make him our Lord and our Savior. So we go to him. We can be honest. And if we're not eager for his return, well, maybe we're just not thinking about it enough. And we need to spend more time with him and with his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can look forward to being with you and look forward to that with eagerness. That you have given us a high priest that you will not reject. And that he is on our behalf. And in accepting him, you accept us. Heavenly Father, it is a truth too glorious for us to even fully comprehend, but it is full of comfort. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you will give us that joy that we can have in Christ and that eagerness for his return that you desire us to have. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then if you want to stand, and you can step apart if you want, or get out of the sun if you're in the sun, and uh, Becky, if you want to lead us in the benediction, or I mean in the uh, doxology.
for our benediction this morning, I want to read the last words of the book of Revelation, the last book we have of Scripture. And John writes this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Clear. All right. Whoops. I don't know what that did. Oh, okay.